Welcome back to another episode of Reversing Course, the golf course restoration at Wakanda Club. I'm Rianne Kinney. I'm the general manager here, and I have here with me Dane Wilson, our golf course superintendent, Aaron Kruger, our director of golf, and special guest Dan Moore, our golf historian. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Good morning. morning. Okay, well, we're another week in. Uh, Dane, why don't you give us an update? Yeah, we've been... um well, we've been moving along really well, just like we have been this whole project. And really the processes that we've been going through, they're continuing on just, you know, more so on the east side. But at this moment, we're actually turning a new phase where we're starting to finish holes off. So that's always a nice point to get to because then you realize that you're starting to work yourself out of it. You know, in our industry, you know, you're always concerned, not concerned, but you find yourself just growing grass and growing grass and it's an unnatural state sometimes to be on the opposite side of that where you're killing it, tearing it up, <laughs> moving stuff around. And you think to yourself sometimes that, you know, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? And so this is that point where we're kind of coming around the corner and seeing that light. Um, and like I said, while the processes are still going on further out ahead of us, but those processes are actually maybe four or five holes ahead of where we're at now. So we actually just seeded number three yesterday. We've got a couple tie-in things to do today before we can start running the water, but we should be done with that around 8.30, 9 o'clock this morning and then just let the water fly. Other than that, um, you know, and part of putting some of that stuff back together, you know, within the past few days, we've had obviously the sod company come in to do some of the green complex or one green complex and a tea complex. And then we've had an asphalt or cement crew in to run our new cart paths over on the west side so we're done there for now until we get to 18t tyler ray and jim ryan were in this week we've shaped and approved two and 17 green so two green was drained yesterday it'll be ready for mix today and then 17 green will be drained either today between today and tomorrow so effectively we could just need to get to a point where we're just putting things back together yeah um so two and 17 were actually um complete rebuild Greens. So yeah. that's a little bit different than what we've been doing. These are kind of the first full rebuild greens that we've done in the project now. So how was that process? Uh, well, the process it, itself and just, you know, getting out ahead with those processes I was talking about, but getting to a point where we could actually strip those greens and move them. So we yeah. were pushing and pushing and pushing to get that done. But within the last week and a half, we were able to strip both of those as well as a third of number five and we've completed six greens now to that point for our expansions and while we could have done it this week you know with the weather that we've had you know we're kind of in that what do they call it what are we in heat dome yes whatever that is but um this week just wasn't appropriate or right to strip any sod back and try to make that work so weather breaks this week we get back to it next week but with that being said you know what I tasked the irrigation team with was to get as many greens loops done as they could mm. and so as it stands now we only have two more greens loops to run uh, both of which are just on opposite ends where we don't have the ability to tie in the main line or our new main line it's the last points of connection but we also looked at that we'll run that new main line and get that connected this week ultimately we've got five more greens that we can address with the mix and sod expansion so by my math, looking at what we've got ahead of us versus what we've got available, we're going to be able to strip probably at least 5 and 15 this week, leaving only number 9 for us. Wow. Um, then that'll get us in a position to start the earthwork on 5 as well as 15 <clears throat> and start moving forward. 
Yeah. So in preparation for seeding, so we started seeding this week, and which was a, a slightly ahead of where we were trying to be for seeding, starting seeding, so that was great. Um, but in preparation for that, you uh, put down a test plot of the Dominant Extreme 7 onto the driving range in our nursery. So that went down three weeks ago? How long ago? Uh, four and a half weeks four ago. Half weeks. Okay. We had planted that. You could call it the driving range or the firing range, depending on if you're <laughs> hitting balls or trying to pull sun. So. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, we did that four and a half weeks ago. And, you know, our original thought process behind it was obviously it is a test plot. So we wanted to see how things react and how things would progress, especially with this new grass. So our original thought process was we'd go through, we'd airfy, verticut, and then slit seed into it. And by all intents and purposes that, you know, in my mind, knowing that we've got a compaction problem, this is our opportunity to relieve some of that throughout the process. Right. However, as we, you know, did that and we started to grow in, we had a really good germination on throughout the whole thing. But inevitably, probably around week two, um, we started, you know, well, the driving range itself, especially on that nursery, has had always had an issue with weed pressure. And, you know, as we went to seed, I mean, that thing couldn't have been any more dead. But within two and a half weeks, we started getting some goosegrass, crabgrass, nutsedge, and purslane. And that's kind of taken over a little bit. Not taken over. You know, what we talked about a little bit earlier, when you kind of look through the trees, the stain of grass itself is really good. And it's actually filled in quite nicely. And I kept telling myself, you know, I'm not going to concern myself with anything until week six. And we're at four and a half, and I feel pretty good about where we're going, especially today. We're actually going to go fertilize it, mainly to calibrate our uh, our spreader, because we're actually using our top dresser to throw out a bulk application just ahead of preceding. Mm -hmm. So if I get that fertilizer on, and we should get a good pot with cooler temperatures next week. I'm not overly concerned about disease on it, even though we are covered. But I think that little shot leading into week six will be uh will be interesting to see have you changed your strategy at all for seeding based on what you've seen in your test plot yeah so with that you know with the airification verticutting ahead of tri-waving or slit seeding you know we elected actually to not airify or verticut because what we felt like while i said that we have a high disease or not while we have a high pressure for weeds on the driving range I felt like within that process, we actually brought up a large amount of seed bank to make it even worse. And so inevitably, even out on the fairways, we are going to have some weed pressure. You're never going to get away with that, especially when you start tossing water. It doesn't matter if there's nothing there or not. You know, we're introducing, you know, great environment for everything and anything to pop. But I think, um, I think by eliminating those two pieces, the airifying and verticutting prior to which we're not disturbing as much or as much, we're not bringing up a seed bank of whatnot so I'll be curious to see what kind of pop we get out of this however so with those four and a half weeks you know we applied a herbicide you know as a test to half the nursery just to see how this new grass would take it typically you want your higher heights of cut on your nursery or not nursery but any stain of grass before you go spray that herbicide especially on bent grass so we're kind of taking a risk you know, seeing as we're probably about half the height of cut that we will be during a normal play, reason for which you want to mow it as low as you can until you get that plant to start spreading laterally and fill in, and then you raise the height of cut. So that can always be an issue. But 
Uh, it's a little bit early, but I'm starting to see a lot of weeds turn over just in the areas that we did spray, with the exception of the purse lane, which it wasn't labeled for, so I'm going to have to try another product for that, which was intentional anyways. I just wanted to target the crabgrass and goosegrass first. But um, those two plants are starting to turn over a little bit, and um, I get into next week, and we see what that does, and if everything seems to be all right, which it does right now, you know, the bent grass is healthy as can be, and the weeds are turning over, but... As I get into Monday and look at it, if everything feels comfortable, then I'll go spray the rest of it. Okay. So as we seed and we're uh, getting the irrigation system hopefully up and running by this morning. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we did get the pole put in um, a couple of days ago. The electricians are here already this morning, so they're going to start working on it. I need to touch base with them and see where they're at by the end of the day. But as we do turn the pump station on, we're going to have to flush the system. So I'm going to try to get through the weekend at least using the old irrigation system to run number three. Yeah which doing some tests, we're able to have head-to-head -head coverage is all we need. And then once we flush that system, we'll be able to turn over to the new. But I think if, if we were to try to push it to two holes using the old system, I don't know how well that would work. Okay. So given that we are in what you call a, a heat dome, is that the word there? Excessive heat warnings. Uh, excessive heat warnings. Um, are you worried? Are you concerned at all in growing in new new grass with the with that excessive heat? Are you worried about disease pressure? Anything anything that you're worried about there? For for what we seeded uh, yesterday, I'm not. And actually, to some degree, it works in our benefit because the warmer it is, the faster that seed will germinate. Okay. And so I think that works for us in terms of, say, what we've planted already on the nursery. I mean, we're covered with our fungicides and the, the way that we water that anyways. I mean, we always typically run three minutes, an hour until we get seed to germinate, until we're ready to mow and get to the two-leaf stage. But um, as we get to that two-leaf stage, we wean ourselves off of the water a little bit. And regardless of whether we're in grow-in or, you know, trying to fill in, we'll call it, um, we typically cut the water two, three hours before nightfall, mm -hmm. because what we want to do is have that plant and that surface dry out before we go into the night so that we're not susceptible to overly wet soils, especially in the morning throughout the night, especially, well, you know, when we have these 75, 77 mm -hmm. degree nights. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Dane, thank you for that update. Still a lot going on and uh, a lot of different uh, contractors out there again this week. So a lot to coordinate and we appreciate everything you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. Our special guest is uh, Chicago-based golf historian and photographer, Dan Moore. Dan is the founder of Moore Golf, which specializes in golf history research and consulting services with a specific emphasis on Langford and Moreau courses. He is currently the golf historian and photographer at Lasonia Links, uh, Langford and Moreau's most highly regarded course. Dan has been engaged to consult on the restoration project here at Wakanda, providing his vast knowledge and expertise to Tyler Ray and his team as they restore our historic course. We are very honored to have Mr. Moore here today to talk with us about all things Langford and Moreau and his role in the project. Um, Mr. Moore. Welcome to the Carver. Well, good morning and thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, well, we would love to know, as a golf historian, uh, what made you interested initially in golf courses and golf course architecture? Well, it really kind of started when I was a kid. I grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee and my parents weren't wealthy enough to belong to a country club, so I learned to play golf in a big field that was behind our house. And as a 
like a 10 year old, eight, nine, 10 year old, I would go out there and design my own golf holes and play to those. The tree, the pitcher's mound of the little baseball field that was there was the first Hogsback uh, Green. I designed a, a, an island green in the cul-de-sac of the, of the of street where there was a grassy area in between the concrete. Nothing to say about Pete Dye, but you know, I came <laughs> up with the idea in the 60s. Um, so um, that's kind of where it started. And then, like in the background throughout my you know, younger years, I was always just interested in golf courses. Watching the British Open on TV, I think, was a big part of it. And seeing, hey, that's not the way courses are here in the United States. And, you know, why is that? And then when I, after college, I discovered the links of Lasonia in Wisconsin. I grew up in Wisconsin. I went to the University of Wisconsin. By then, I was living in Chicago where I was working. And I, every year we would go up. We would stay there. We would, I would play golf there. I had friends in Wisconsin still. So I played there, you know, probably five or ten times a year for now almost 40 years. So... I got to know that quite well, and it was very different. So it kind of sparked my interest in why is this so different than the other courses that we normally play, the tree line kind of normal courses. Um, so I got into a little bit, started researching golf course architecture and golf history more. It started with the World Atlas of Golf, a book that surveyed golf courses all over the world. And then Ron Witten's book, uh, The Golf Course, I think it's called which talked about golf architects, and, and so I started studying a lot of this. And then in the early 2000s, I think post-Sandhills and Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw, is there was a great revival among a lot of people thinking about classic golf course architecture and restoring old golden age 1920s golf courses. So um, I kind of really kicked into a higher gear then, really doing some deep research, and it came up with an idea of doing a book about the history of golf course architecture in Chicago because it's kind of a microcosm of how golf came to the United States. Charles Blair McDonald, his parents had sent him to St. Andrews in 1872, I think it was, uh, to escape the ruins of the Chicago fire. He was 16 years old at the time. His father was a professor at the University of St. Andrews. So he went and spent two, three years in St. Andrews, got a first day there, was introduced to old Tom Morris. He played with old Tom's son, young Tom Morris, and over those three years became a very accomplished golfer. But then he came back to Chicago and wanted to play golf and no one would even think about it. It was business, business, business. You couldn't get anybody interested in, in, a, in a game like golf. It took him 20 years of constant annoying conversations with his friends and business people. He became a very successful stockbroker. Uh, but finally with the World's Fair coming to Chicago, golf kind of took hold started in New York, Apple Tree Gang in the 1880s, and it took hold in Chicago with the World's Fair and a lot of people from the UK coming to Chicago, and they wanted to provide a place for them to play. So McDonald started with his first golf course, just a little putting green basically on the bluff of Lake Forest, and then from there it evolved into the Chicago Golf Club, and golf just kind of took off in Chicago. And, uh, right around that time, William Lankford was born in 1887. Um, young man on the west side of Chicago, which is now part of Oak Park. Um, he was born in 1887. By the time he was 10 or so, golf was really taking, making, making, uh, making its way into the uh, community. And he, there was a new golf course in his neighborhood called Westward Ho. Um, and his parents joined and he had polio as a young man. So the doctor, his doctors told him, get out and walk, play golf something so golf and polio were really you know kind of intertwined in his life and he, he learned how to 
learned how to play golf quite good at it under uh, Macintosh's tutelage. Now, Macintosh, interesting character because he was pretty young when Mac, uh, when Lankford met him in his late 20s, I believe. They became lifelong friends, but Macintosh uh, grew up in St. Andrews, Scotland, and was mentored by old Tom Morris. So the connections to the old game were very evident there. And uh, they became lifelong friends, and there are census reports that I found where Macintosh was actually living in the Langford family home in the 20s and 30s. So just kind of an interesting little tidbit. But he taught Langford how to play golf, and Langford became pretty successful, attended Yale University where he was on three NCAA championship teams. He wasn't the number one player, but he was quite, you know, pretty accomplished golfer. Played in a number of USGA tournaments, I think he made the round of 32 at the Chicago Golf Club in 1909. Um, a lot of Western uh, amateur golf court golf tournaments as well. He won the Columbia University uh, tournament two years that he was there studying engineering again, um, where he got a, a master's degree in engineering at Columbia University. I think it was around 1912. And then um, from that point, he went to work in the mines of West Virginia as an engineer, and he didn't like that too much, I guess. So two years later, he, he quit that and moved back to his family's house in Chicago and hung up his shingle as a golf course architecture in 1914, 27 years old, and just started doing golf architecture work using his engineering background. Started slow, he was working at, you know, by himself. He would have to work with the clubs. The superintendents of the clubs would probably build the golf courses. But he steadily increased the amount of work he was doing, getting around the country a little bit, Ohio, Indiana, mostly in the Midwest. Um, and then by 1919, 1920, he met um, American Park Builders. It was a big landscape architecture firm. They hired him to be their in-house golf course architect. They were doing a lot of big jobs. And the secretary of the company at that time was a man named Theodore Moreau. Moreau was in charge of construction for American Park Builders. So the two of them, uh, having met there, joined forces in 1920 and formed the golf architecture firm of Langford and Moreau. With Moreau handling construction and engineering and all those details and Langford handling the, the design of the golf course, the golf course architecture. So in 1919, to turn the page to Wakanda, the Des Moines Golf and Country Club was looking to move to a new location. And they found the land that Wakanda currently sits on and started to negotiate to purchase the land and started to um, plan for a new, you know, kind of state-of-the-art golden age golf course because they probably had an older style golf course um, at their other location. And I, I haven't, as a historian, I haven't been able to quite figure this out and maybe the club has figured it out since I was here last year how it transitioned from Des Moines Golf and Country Club to the Wakanda Club. But apparently something happened where the Des Moines Club decided to go a different direction, and some of the members from Des Moines Golf Club split off and formed the Wakanda Club. Mm -hmm. But the early indications are that they hired American Park Builders to design and build their golf course. So that's what brought Langford in and Moreau in. And that process started in 1920, and the golf course, I think, opened July 4th, 1922. So um, we go through that. We have an, the club had an original copy of the Langford Moreau plan predating the start of the construction, 
and in the process of my research on the, I found a Des Moines Register article from December of 1921, after the course had mostly been finished, um, that had you know a copy of the, the routing plan and listed all the bunkers and things that had actually been built. So from that, we were able to see what was changed from the original plan to what actually got built. And that's been helpful in our restoration process. Uh, Frankly, not many changes were made. A few bunkers here and there. The routing was, you know, was identical. But one of the interesting things, it was originally a 27-hole layout with three separate nine-hole loops. And I'm not clear on this either. Maybe it was the transition to the Wakanda Club from the Des Moines Golf Club. But for some reason, the, the third nine-hole loop was not built, although some of the holes that exist today were part of one of those uh, of the third nine, if you want to call it that. So holes, today's hole number four was the t 19th hole, I believe. And today's hole number two was the 26th hole. And today's hole number four was the 27th hole. And so the front nine was a little bit different. It went across the street. What's the street? To Park the, Avenue. Park Avenue. Yeah. went across the, the street for a while. Started on today's one, went across the street at some point, came back and finished with what we know today as holes six, seven, eight, and nine. That was the front nine, and the back nine was pretty much what it was up until you get to the, after 16, you would, in 17, you'd, uh, well, you know, actually, the second and third hole got part of the front nine, I misspoke. Um, so that's kind of the background and the history of, of how Langford and Moreau got involved here. Um, what, I, with, with Langford specifically, what made him unique among other uh, golf course architects of that time? Obviously, a lot of notable golf, golf course architects came out of that golden age era. Right. What, what made him unique among them, and, and how was he influenced by them or them influenced by him? Well, that's a really an interesting question. I mean, I, I haven't quite figured out everything about that yet. I mean, so 1914, he starts his career. He writes a pamphlet called Golf Course Architecture in the Chicago district. There's very little literature on golf course architecture in the United States at that point in time, very little. There's an article that Charles Blair McDonald wrote called The Ideal Links, just seven or eight pages, where he was talking about all the golf course principles he wanted to put into his new course, the National Golf Links of America. But that was it. In England and UK, there was a lot of discussion going on, starting around 1901, Golden Age principles, John Lowe, strategic golf becoming the paramount. So the thing that's important to understand is that up until about 1910, 1910, the National Golf Links of America in the United States, golf courses were completely different than anything we see today. Bunkers extended from one side of the fairway to the other side of the fairway, perpendicular to the line of play. You had to hit over them. It was kind of like steeplechase golf. Greens were built just lay of the land. They were often square, uh, very little bunkering around them. Um, and then with the golden age of golf coming along, kind of spurred by the new ball that went farther, the, the Haskell, they called it, um, there was a, a, a new approach to golf course architecture, basically you know, revolving around the idea that you shouldn't penalize bad shots, but you should reward thoughtful and strategic play through the placement of your bunkers. And then more interesting and... Uh, difficult problems surrounding the greens as well, how they were bunkered side to side rather than in front, um, and then putting undulations into the green, which were twofold. One, increase the interest in playing golf, but secondly, to allow 
better maintenance of the greens through drainage, mm-hmm. internal drainage and natural drainage of the of the green union using the undulations that were built into the green pads. So that started in England, basically, Harry Colt, and he wrote a lot about golf course architecture. So Langford, an educated guy, got an undergrad degree in engineering at Yale and a graduate degree in engineering at Columbia, very interested in golf, a very accomplished amateur golfer. He probably was well-read in terms of what was available. Uh, during those years, he was on the East Coast when the National Golf Links was being built. Strong Chicago connections. He had obviously played at the Chicago Golf Club when he was a kid growing up. 1909 amateur there on the older course that was the, you know, the old architecture in Chicago. So I think he was very on the cutting edge of what the latest thinking of golf course architecture was all about. How to use bunkers. Um, and I, I think he, he talks a lot in, in different things about thoughtful golf, strategic golf, challenging a good player while giving the lesser player a, an alternative avenue and route of playing the hole. Uh, I think a fundamental aspect of his golf is he wanted to challenge good players while also making the game enjoyable and interesting for less accomplished, physically accomplished golfers. So that's a big part of his architecture. And I think that translates into, you know, he has a lot of big, massive bunkers on his golf courses. Uh, they're not there to penalize people. They're there to say, challenge me if you want to, or you have this wide expanse, 30, 40 yards to the left. You can get around me. It might cost you half a shot to get around me, but there you go. You can, you can pick and choose how you want to play this the other thing he was really interested in doing was not allowing somebody who was just a brawny, long-hitter golfer to have an advantage over somebody who couldn't hit the ball as far as, as the long hitters. And he tried to do that in a, a number of ways. And one of them was to have long par threes where a skilled shot rather than just a long shot was necessary so that the, the shorter hitter might have to hit a three-wood or a driver to get to the green. But if he was accurate with it, he might have advantage over a longer hitter who was hitting a, a three iron, for example, but couldn't hit the green because they're not as accurate. So he tried to balance things out. The other one was through wide variety of, of hole distances, short par fours, medium length par fours, long par fours, uh, just so that there was a great deal of variety and interest in, in how the holes were set up. And then the same thing with the par fives, having one or two shorter ones then at least one really long one for its day, 560, 580 yards in 1920 was a very long golf hole. And you always had at least one like that. And I, I think uh, you, you see that here as well, where you have different lengths of, of hole varying from the short 15th to the longer eighth hole, for example. And then the other two are kind of in between. Um, so, so as Tyler Ray's brought you on to this project to assist, yeah. what... I and mean, what is your role as you're as you're here and, and consulting with this project? Well, a couple of things. One is just to kind of help him in the research phase of it to figure out what was here originally. As you guys who are here know, you're seeing the transformation that's going on. What was here originally is very different than what was here um, a year ago, <laughs> and what's going to be here is going to be very different. And so we're basically trying to provide this historical research into what was actually built. We have that plan I talked about. I found the December 21 plan that shows a little bit different. Um, you know, a couple bunkers here and there, not big changes, but a little bit. And then the other thing we discovered in the research is that the one thing that wasn't finished in December of 21 was the greens. 
And I think he's noticed and I've noticed that the greens here are not what we would typically find at a Langford Merle course. Mm -hmm. well, I don't know if that's because of 100 years of evolution and they were rebuilt at some point in time, or if they weren't originally built the way Langford would normally build them. One of the things I found in the research was that early on the club transitioned to a new form of bent grass, Washington bent that had just been you know, starting to be used on a lot of golf courses. And the, the first superintendent had a sod farm actually at his house, probably a farm nearby, and was bringing this, the grass in and grassing the greens uh, probably right up until the course opened on July 4th, 20, 1922. So, uh, you know, finding some of that thing, and I think during the construction phase, the other thing he wanted me here for is I've seen a lot of Lankford Murrow courses. I've studied them for 20 years now, um, just to have another set of eyes to help him get it as close to right as possible. I think he's just looking for, you know, maybe maybe if we do it this way or that way, and just, just another set of eyes in his effort to deliver the best possible product for the members of Wakanda. So how do you reconcile that? How do you you know, assist him with making those decisions on what to do with some of these greens that might not look like they exactly fit, but you know, we're going back to all these original features and all the area, other areas of the course, and how do we reconcile the two and make sure that they still blend uh, with the, the greens? Right. Well, one of the things you're doing is you're building five brand new greens, mm -hmm. right? Um, and he and I have had some discussions. He's he's done a lot of research on Lankford Murrow independently of me, so he you know he's very well versed in Lankford as well. But kind of just having a sounding board back and forth to talking about you know what what greens of Lankford Murrows that we know are original that could be used as inspiration for the greens that he's building here. So that's kind of what we've been doing. So uh, just taking the second hole, which we've been working on this trip, um, kind of an inspiration for the hole is. Some of the holes that were already here um, on the, you know, maybe didn't get built on the other side of the road. He looked at a lot of those on the original plan. And then also a hole that would fit that land, uh, which is the second hole at Culver Academy, which is, um, it's gonna have a similar look. Um, his plan had two bunkers on the hole. And then when we were sitting there standing, looking at it the other day, we made the decision that one bunker would fit the terrain of Wakanda better than the two bunkers that they have at, at Culver. So just little things like that. Um, you know, he's seen that hole, I've seen that hole. I go there every year and play Culver and I have photos and I have research. I have a picture of when, of the Culver second green when it was just seeded and built. So we know what it was originally and then we have pictures of it today. And then over the years as well, they actually have a pretty good archive of material historical material at Culver, so it's interesting. Do you remember the first time that you came to Wakanda? I do. Tell was, us about that and what well, you I was, saw. Well, I was in my uh, prior life, where as the executive director of the Directors Guild of America, I came to Iowa because Iowa had passed a tax credit to promote filmmaking, and I, rep I worked for the Directors Guild of America, labor union in the TV and film industry, and part of my job was to visit all the movie and TV sets that were in the Midwest. So I came to Iowa to visit the very short-lived uh, spurt of production Iowa enjoyed during their, I think the tax credit only lasted a year or so. So I came here and I was going to go visit a set and the airport was right there and I saw Wakanda. I go, well, I better go to Wakanda. So I called up the club and said it would be possible to come by and take a look. And they said, sure. So that was, I think, 2009. At least that's the timestamp on the photos I took that day since <laughs> it was 2009. Um, and so I you know, I could see the land was just something really unique and different and special. 
but I had already had, I think I already had from my research, I had a copy of the original Langford Moreau plan. That's an interesting story too, if you want to get into it. Um, so I was able to see what was here originally, and I went back and I go back and look at old aerials and things like that. So the course was built pretty close to the original plan. But now when you played, um, like a big example would be the, the sixth hole, I think, where the bunkers on the right were 20 yards into trees. And then you come to the 10th hole and the 10th and the 8th hole were a wide shared fairway, over 100 yards wide combined fairway. And now there was, what, how wide was 10? 25, 30 yards? Lots yeah. of 30. 30, 30 yards mm -hmm. wide. And eight was the same. And you, again, you could see the bunkers that were serving dual purpose for both holes. There's one really unique bunker out there that faces one way for the eighth hole and the other way for the tenth hole. And that was, you know, buried in the trees as well. So you could see what was here, but the golf course had changed over its hundred years and it was no longer really reflecting the original Langford Moreau design. And I go, wow, this place could be really special if, you know, they had the, the weld and the interest in wanting to do something so it took what how many years 13 years and here we are 14 years well 2009 was just on the heels of the 2008 light study tree removal and regrassing so right. you saw it after yeah after yeah. after an attempt to reduce right. some trees yeah and i noticed over there i came back periodically i'd take uh, a couple trips to nebraska where we'd drive through I-80 and we'd, I'd stopped here a couple other times mm -hmm. and you could see there was a new bunker project I think in the early 2010s yeah. mm -hmm. um, that helped improve some things and um, some more tree removal behind greens and things like that which improved the aesthetics and the views but you know, I thought you know the spectacular property was just really obscured in the trees and yeah. the golf course was obscured in the trees and, you know it's I'm really excited that the club has seen that as well and is, you know, putting putting the club behind trying to bring that back because I think it's one of the most exciting restoration projects that I've seen in the you know last dozen years or so. Uh, Langford Moreau did not get the amount of uh, recognition that they deserve, and um, I think this could be a transformative event in terms of raising the the recognition and appreciation of their architecture uh, back to where it should be. So we really are trying to do a full restoration here. Yes. You know, there have been some attempts to, to do some tree removal and uh, maybe some bunker uh, projects and things like that, but we're, we're really trying to do it, you know, do Langford and Moreau proud um, and, and do a full restoration here. Is there anything here that we're not doing that you wish we were? Um, I mean, I, I've been very impressed with the extent to which Tyler and the club have really gone back to the original plan and are trying to accomplish that. I mean, the only thing you could really say, and I know it's just practical economics, is if you did all 18 greens instead of just five, but, you know, the greens here aren't bad. They're not bad at all. They're, they're actually pretty good. They're really well-maintained, and they yet modern green speeds, you know, you may have trouble putting in some of the Langford Moreau original undulations that you see at other courses. There's a green I know of that drops seven feet from the back to the front. You couldn't do that today. So you have to have you have to be practical in terms of how the game and agronomy and the science of golf has changed over the last hundred years and take what they did then and apply it to today's standards. So um, I think the, the fact that you're doing five greens is great. 
It's, you know, you've got to be realistic. The fact that you're doing all the other work is fantastic. I mean, it's going to be transformative either way, um, but that would be the only, the only thing. And I think you're keeping the best screens. You're taking a couple that had been rebuilt in recent years and maybe not, weren't as interesting or didn't fit the hole that they needed to. I mean, like the second hole, I, know, I noticed when they came to the, the hole just didn't really make sense architecturally. It was originally designed as a very short uphill, 120 yard or so, par three. Tee box would be where some of the houses on Park Avenue are today. It's a completely different angle that played into that green than it has been played. And it was turned into a 185 yard uphill to almost blank green. Not really very visually interesting, very difficult hole, second hole of the, of the round. So Tyler's bringing the green down and, and going to put in a green there that has some interest in the internal contours. And I, I just think that'll be, a, just that one hole will be a huge improvement. And you take that to other places as well. The fifth green, again, he's going to take one of my favorite greens and use that as the inspiration. The sixth hole at Lasonia, which is a very pronounced diagonal tier from the back right to the front left. And you know, put that into that green, and I think it'll work great in, in that context. So, and this, you know, the same at the other greens. He's, he's taking inspiration for, you're not going to like slavishly copy them because that doesn't really work. Um, but, you know, using the inspiration from those greens and those concepts and applying them to the greens that he's rebuilding here. So you've been very involved with Lasonia for a long time, right. and um, so how does you know maybe our restoration differ from what they're doing there in our process or other restorations that you've been a part of? Well, Lasonia is is is, diff is really unique, and I think it's unique because it was built as a really high end resort in the 1920s by a group of Chicago investors, and when the Great Depression hit, their Ponzi scheme of real estate development kind of collapsed all around them, and the, the what was going to be a millionaire's resort uh, went into receivership and bankruptcy, and most of the people behind the company went to jail. So <laughs> it's one of those stories when, you know, things caught up with them. They, they overextended. They promised things they couldn't deliver on, and, and so be it. But the, the course went into bankruptcy all through the 30s. And then in the 40s, during World War II, the American Baptist Assembly purchased the land. It's a beautiful 1,500-acre property right on Green Lake in Wisconsin. 26 mile circumference lake, spring fed, one of the beautiful lakes in, in, in Wisconsin, and turned it into a religious retreat. So golf was not their primary mission. So they left the golf course alone for 100 years, basically. There were a few trees planted, but nothing really got changed. The greens were original. The bunkers were all still there, original. Uh, I think 40 of the original bunkers had grassed over. And I think we found two bunkers were removed and one bunker was added. That's it. I mean, for a golf course 100 years old, that's a remarkably intact original golf course design. And Ron Force had been there in the late 2000s and removed a lot of trees and put some native fescue areas back in and expanded some of the fairways to some extent. But then Craig Haltom hired me two years ago to help them take it to the next step. They're re re uh, redoing all the greens that grassed over, all the bunkers that had grassed over, excuse me, and and taking a look at some other things. We're going to remove the one non-original bunker. We're going to put back the two bunkers that are completely gone. And then all those, that 40 grassed over bunkers, we're restoring all of those and putting sand back in. So that's actually a very easy process, just because <laughs> most of it's mm -hmm. original. 
Um, but getting the bunker sizes right, and a big thing there was the mowing lines were not nearly as wide. So reconnecting the mowing lines, they, they probably took them out 15, 20 yards this, this spring. And reconnecting them to how the, the fairways flow in, in curve curve lines of the fairways and how they connect to the bunkers and the greens, the fairway bunkers and then in the greenside areas as well. And that's another thing that, that the plan here is doing as well. So, mm-hmm. so what, what does our restoration here mean to you and other Langford enthusiasts like you? Well, I know on the Twitter sphere, Twitter sphere of golf, where there's a Twitter handle called Langford Moreau, they've been talking about it quite a bit. Um, I've talked to other golf course architects, and I think everybody's really excited to know that this is happening. Everybody knows Wakanda Club from the Principal Charity Classic. You can see that it's not an original, at least in the style and the presentation of the golf course, not original to Langford Moreau, and the fact that and I keep telling everybody, I've seen the plans, I'm helping them. It's really going to be a true restoration. We're going back really sympathetically to the original plans. It's, it's in, you know, I'm impressed with the, the level of and degree of which sticking to the original plan. It's really impressive. And I think, you know, that's going to have a huge impact in the golf world, P- particularly since it is a you know, senior tour event. It's going to be on TV every year. And I watched this year, and they were talking about the restoration already. And um, there was, you know, you could feel and hear the excitement building a little bit. And I think people are going to be blown away when they see this. The, the land is being opened up. The, the rugged roller coaster nature of this property will just be, you know, with the tree removal, I think it's even more beautiful than it was before. You, know, you get these wide landscape of views across the golf course now that you didn't have before because the trees block them. And you know, there are going to be places where you get on the golf course and you look around and you're going to go, wow. I just think there's going to be three or four really wow moments for people when they play the golf course now that they didn't have before. And that's exciting. I think uh, that's what the original architecture was. This was probably, there were trees here originally for sure. And there are going to be a lot of trees here when you finish, but there are going to be a lot fewer trees than there were two years ago. And I think the golf course will look more beautiful as a result of that. I know it's a hard sell sometimes to the members, but once they see it, I think they'll understand and realize that as well. I think a lot of members will have 18 wow moments. Yeah, they might. They're going to see a couple. I know of I'm, they, I'm they probably, that way. If they're seeing some of the photos on Twitter now, they're probably having some wow. Yeah. What would you tell our members if they're, you know, as a as non-historians or other just regular golfers? What would you tell them to look for um, as far as golf course architecture? If they're looking at a golf course, of course, it's always, you know, aesthetically beautiful. Right. But how would you kind of give somebody a, a, the shortened Cliff's Notes education on golf course architecture and what to look for? I would say take a notebook and go around the golf course and... Write down what's the purpose of every bunker on the golf course. Why is why did the architect put that bunker in that location? And there's so many reasons for using bunkers. Langford used a lot of bunkers just for framing and artistic reasons, to make the landscape look nice. So the first hole is a great example. You stand on the tee, you're high up, you see this bunker down in the fairway. In the distance, it's really beyond the reach of most golfers. Most golfers are not going to be able to hit their drive into that bunker. But it's there as a you know, a marker of how the hole looks and plays. and But then when you get down, you hit through your drive down there. I know I've hit a couple times that I played here. Um, there was one time three of us drove. We all hit it in completely different places 
one high up on the left, one in the middle on the left, and one down the right. And they all ended up within a few feet of each other, right in front of that bunker in the rough. <laughs> but with a beautiful view over the bunker right up to the green, the green perched high on the, the, you know, the hill beyond. So that bunker was there, I think, directing you to, to where it is, to where, to where you're going to hit your shot. And then it's in front of you as you're trying to approach the green. And it creates an eye line. Um, the top edge of the bunker creates a little like line directing you where to go. So I think you see that throughout the golf course. You're gonna you're gonna see that constantly. Just go through. I go through and just kind of why did they why did they put a bunker here? Beyond here, what are some of your favorite courses to play? Um, well, just sticking to Langford Moreau. I mean Lasonia because I've been playing there for years, and I just think is it is it historically accurate. You know, maintain golf courses. It's, it's, you know, it's a public golf course. It doesn't have country club level conditioning. I think if it did, it would be in the top twenty in the country. Um, a lot of people feel that way, but it does, just doesn't have that. And you know, it's great because it's a public golf course and everybody can play it. That's a favorite. I mean, other Langford Moreaus. I was just recently hired to to go to Texarkana Country Club right on the Texas Arkansas border. Nineteen twenty four course. Another course they just really beautiful setting and surroundings reminiscent of Augusta National maybe not quite as hilly but that kind of southern pines kind of sandy loamy waste areas Pinehurst Augusta kind of look to it and and a really really well balanced interesting golf course so it's Texarkana X being the big thing there's a feature in the middle of the golf course where the 12th and the 18th holes combine, kind of like your 8th and 10th holes combine. But they combine to form an X, a big X between the two holes. <laughs> Is it crisscross play? They don't crisscross. Really? They meet at a central bunker right where the X, the lines of the X meet. There's a central bunker that plays as a bunker for both holes. So the 12th is a dogleg left. You come down to that bunker and go left. And the 18th is the same. Come down to the bunker and go, go left. So huh. you're playing on the outside arms of the X on for both holes. But it, when you look at the plan, right in the middle of the plan, there's this huge X. <laughs> it's really kind of unique and funny. But but that uh, actually a very very well designed golf course, and it's lost its way a little bit. They they were the first golf course in the country to build USGA greens in the 1950s. So they blew up all the original Langford Murrow greens. And the greenside bunkering, but a lot of the, a lot of it's like here is a lot of it. A lot of the fairway bunkers are still there, waiting to be restored. So that's one. Um, in in the Chicago area, if you want to really get to know what Langford Murrow original greens were like, you go to Kankakee Elks. Uh, pretty low end maintenance public golf course, forty dollars to play, but the greens are just spectacular, and you can see what they're like. Culver Academy, the nine holes there, also a fantastic example of their architecture recent restoration by Bobby Weed and the superintendent there, Mike Besley, is doing a really spectacular, fantastic job taking care of it and bringing back a lot of the original features. So I think, you know, those in Chicago, you did a lot of courses, some of which are irretrievably lost unless somebody wanted to like rebuild the golf course, like Butterfield Country Club um, is one. It's gotten renovated a couple times and so none of the original Langford Murrow stuff is there but Skokie Country Club is one where it's not an original design it was a Donald Ross course and then Langford Murrow were hired to, to build eight new holes so it's a little bit of a mix of both um, but that one's in really good shape and you get to see some original Langford Murrow there and that's probably the best of the, the work that's 
remains in Chicago. There's a Bryn Mawr Country Club where the Langford Moreau features are gone. Great example of how to build a golf course in an exceptionally flat piece of land compared to Wakanda. <laughs> so. Well, we have several reasons to thank you today. We thank you for being here and chatting with us. Uh, we thank you for your assistance with this project. Your expertise has been instrumental in our uh, restoration. Uh, we thank you for assisting us with our centennial book uh, this last year, which is also something that you uh, excel in doing, and we appreciate your assistance with that. Um, and I have a personal thank you for uh, jogging my memory of uh, designing golf courses in our backyard in the fields uh, <laughs> behind our house in western Iowa with my two older brothers. That's what we did uh, during our summers growing up. So I yeah. thank you for, for jogging that memory as well. So I did the exact same growing up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> These kids having fun now. They sit there and use their thumbs. Yeah, yeah. got to get outside. Got to get more kids outside. The pandemic's been good for golf. Hopefully, more kids are outside. Absolutely, it's kind of nice coming here. Even during construction, the kids are out on the putting green in the driving range. And Aaron's been working with them. It's great to see. It's a game for all generations, for yep. sure. So, yep. well, thank you very much, and we look forward to right. uh, seeing the finished product and and having you play. Me too. Of course. I'm excited. I mean, you know, I really think this could be one of the more Exciting transformational restoration projects in the country this year, for sure. Thank you.